This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Good evening and welcome to today's program with Texas Governor Rick Perry at the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. I'm Greg Dalton, producer and host of Climate One, the Commonwealth Club Sustainability Initiative. Today's program on energy in America is part of the Commonwealth Club series on ethics and accountability underwritten by the Charles Travers family. Colonel Travers was a great friend to the Commonwealth Club. Rick Perry was a pilot in the U.S. Air Force in the 1970s and began his political career in 1985 representing rural West Texas in the state legislature. He subsequently served as Texas Commissioner of Agriculture and was elected Lieutenant Governor in 1998. In 2000, when George W. Bush became president, Rick Perry succeeded him as governor of Texas. Texas voters have returned him to the office three times. He's here today to talk about making America more energy independent. Please welcome Governor Rick Perry. Hey, thank you. Uh, it is a distinct honor to be here with uh, this uh, august crowd, and, and uh, particularly in front of the, well, let's just say, a very mature and largest of the public forums in uh, America the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> it's a beautiful city. We, uh, uh, I have now on a number of times personally confirmed that the coldest winter I ever went through was a summer in San Francisco. You all, you all have some beautiful weather. Um, and Texans should come here in August often. Um, but I love your climate, and I love the creative culture of the city, this, this area for that matter, Silicon Valley, and um, the innovative technology that uh, we see coming out of that part of uh, our country. Texas actively competes with California um, for technology jobs, but we also we also compete in, in practically every sector of, of the economy. Um, and I happen to think that that competition is really healthy. I think it is, uh, when, you, when you get down to it, America needs both California and Texas to be incredibly competitive, incredibly successful. Um, and and it, it, we need that to pull us out of this economy. As a matter of fact, this is the slowest recovery we've had in 75 years. And we need California and we need Texas to both be uh, leading the charge. We together represent some 20% of the nation's population and over 70% of our nation's border with Mexico. These two states uh, have uh, uh, in common. And, and what happens in Texas and what happens in California matters to the rest of, of this country. I root for this state. I know sometimes I get a, a, a bit of a, of a rap that I only come to California to recruit businesses to come back to Texas. But the fact is, well, I have done that. And, and, but 
I root for this state. I root for California um, to succeed. Just like I was rooting for America's pony, California Chrome, to win the Triple Crown. I was rooting for that pony. But I also know there's a difference in political culture here that I'm not necessarily used to. <laughs> and therefore, there is very different fiscal and regulatory policies that we deal with. And I don't come here to criticize the California model. Um, what I want to do to, this evening is just to speak to the experience of my home state, and then I'll let you come to your own conclusion about which one of those economic models works best. And as Mr. Dalton shared with you, one of the most important policy discussions that we face, one of the most important issues that we face uh, and, and in this state and at the national level is energy policy. And um, I think if you ask any Republican, as a matter of fact, I think if you ask any Democrat, they would agree that it is a good idea for America to be less dependent on foreign oil. It is, it is not in our national or our economic interest to place our fate in the hands of unstable governments in the Middle East or in Venezuela for that matter who could blockade energy resources and cripple the world's economy at any given time. Personally, I'm not opposed to all foreign oil. I'm only opposed to that that comes from these unstable countries. Um, I wholeheartedly support the import of oil from Canada, for instance. And the fact is, I wish the President of the United States would stop blocking the Keystone Pipeline so that we can create the 40,000 jobs that that would entail. You see, the, the President says that he is for the development of our energy re resources on this continent. He just opposes drilling it, permitting it, and transporting it. In Texas, we're known for the development of, of carbon-based fuels, uh, and that makes some sense. We're the state that's known for spindle top, the beginning of, of, the, of the 20th century as it was developed, but our, our approach is not slanted only to the development of uh, traditional fuel sources. We have an all-of-the-above approach to, uh, to energy development. Um, for instance, when, when we deregulated the electricity market, um, we started a boom in Texas in the renewable energy sector. Uh, today, the nation's leading developer of wind energy is not one of those progressive states on the East Coast or the West Coast the number one wind energy producing state in the nation is along the Gulf Coast. It's in Texas. Texas has more than 12,000 megawatts of installed wind energy capacity, more than all but five countries. We built a new network of transmission lines to bring that energy from uh, the areas of the state where it is best produced, which is up in the panhandle of Texas, to uh, the population centers over in the eastern side of our state. 
And our state is friendly to uh, the development of all forms of energy, from wind and solar to clean coal to natural gas and to nuclear for that matter. And at the turn of this century, in the year 2000, our state produced about 20% of the nation's oil. Today, that figure is 36%. We produced 23% of the natural gas then. Today, it's 29%. We also lead the nation in the production of electricity. And I might add, we have our own electric grid that serves over 85% of the state, which allows us to keep out of the federal FERC jurisdiction. These statistics are probably not shocking to anybody in here because Texas has a reputation as a leader in the energy industry. But what is especially exciting to, uh, to me and to uh, our companies is that they're transforming energy exploration with new technology. When Greg and I have the opportunity to sit here and, and take questions and discuss this in a little more free-flowing manner, um, it, it, I, I think you'll be able to see um, just the fascinating things that are going on in the energy sector. And the revolution that's, that's going on with technology and innovation, and, and, and no place is it more apparent than uh, the shell revolution that has absolutely changed the energy industry. Um, shell drilling techniques have doubled oil production in the last three years. Natural gas production is up 52% uh, in the last 14 years. There are towns in South Texas that have had incredible renaissance. Well, there was nothing to revive in some of these South Texas towns. <laughs> so um, they're doing swimmingly well, as I refer to it, because they're swimming in revenues that are coming in. Uh, their uh, families are reinvesting royalties. There are uh, state budget, uh, our state budget uh, is, is uh, in a fairly substantial surplus position. And the shell production is a great example of what the private sector faces as well as a challenge and also uh, as, the, I mean, it's really fascinating uh, to see the changes that have, that have been going on in our state. And, and I'm here to say that one day that same thing can happen in this state with the Monterey shell, but it's up to you. Um, when a recent study determined the oil reserves in the Monterey Shell would be harder to reach because of um, some geology and, and then an estimation by, um, by one of the federal agencies. Some of the, some of the activists pounced on that as a validation that carbon-based fuel exploration just was not the way to go. That, and, and, as I tell people, I said, listen, I've seen this movie before. Um, that's the same thing that they said decades ago about the Barnett Shell up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, the safe drilling techniques are uh, and have been developed. Uh, natural gas in those fields are now being accessed. And the same thing can and I think will happen in that harder to uh, reach oil reserves in the, in the Monterey Shell. 
given the time, given the technology, given the money, uh, the private sector always rises to the challenge. And I, I also don't believe you have to choose between economic prosperity and protection of our environment. Those are not mutually exclusive. Um, since the start of the century, since the start of the, uh, the 21st century in Texas, um, nitrogen oxide emissions have been cut by 62% in Texas. Ozone emissions are down by 23%, which is substantially better than the national average. And we've done that despite the fastest growing economy and the fastest growing population in the country. In fact, in the last 14 years, 37% of all the private sector new jobs created in America were created in Texas. I want you to think about that for just a second. One out of 12 individual in this country lives in Texas. Over that 14-year period of time, three out of every eight jobs were created in that state. And we were also the first state to pass a law requiring the disclosure of all the chemicals used in hydraulic fracturing. But the fact is, we're not going to shut down this safe procedure and over some unsupported claims of environmental risk. There is no study that has shown that fracking contaminates the water supply. I happen to think that these decisions need to be left to best science practices, um, and which none of makes the case against fracking. We happen to care about our environment a great deal in the state of Texas. 95% of that state is privately held. Those individuals have every incentive to take care of the air that we breathe and the water that we drink and the land that we farm or we work. And I happen to know that people in this state care about their natural resources as well, and you should. You have some of the most beautiful natural resources in the world. You have amazing beauty along the coastal region. You have extraordinary forest lands. You have wonderful parks. And I might add, you have the finest wine in the world. So it's up to you to discern, determine uh, the course of, of, of this state, to decide whether you live uh, in a regulatory state or one that emphasizes freedom and growth, whether you tap into your energy potential and develop only certain forms of, of clean energy. Those decisions should be yours. But I do know this. The fastest way to rev up the economy is for America to produce all forms of energy. Hundreds of thousands of jobs can be created if we unleash energy exploration across this country, energy innovation. Uh, it's the quickest way to make our anemic economy very powerful. 
To me, the central issue in this country today is how are we going to get Americans back to work? It's how do we create the environment so that men and women can take care of their families? The unemployment rate that's been provided by the uh, Department of Labor, it doesn't include the number of, of discouraged workers who stop looking for work. You know, when you include those individuals, those, I refer to them as the uncounted uncounted Americans, the grim picture of our economy becomes a bit clearer. Too many Americans are not just unemployed, but they're underemployed, working part-time jobs when they need full-time employment. And over the last five years, all of the economic metrics are headed in the wrong direction. More Americans are out of work, more Americans in poverty, more Americans on food stamps. Family incomes are actually down. Our credit's been downgraded because our national debt has skyrocketed. Small businesses are overregulated. Corporations are overtaxed, and too many of them have moved overseas. Banks are spending more time on compliance with these Dodd-Frank regulations than they are spending time lending money. Pension plans are over-leveraged. Cities from Stockton to Detroit are going bankrupt. And because of all of this, the American dream is in jeopardy. Families can't get ahead. Parents spend more time working and less time with their children. And our children are under assault. Our culture too often preaches, you know, it's all about me. And America can't continue on this course because the bills always come due. And that bill is now $50,000 for every child born into the United States. That's their part of the federal debt. They're the ones who are going to inherit our legacy. They're going to inherit this country. Whether they inherit a legacy of debt or whether they inherit a legacy of hope and promise. Their future is more important than any political party, or for that matter, anyone's personal agenda. They are the hope for the future of this country. And I hope and I pray that our goal will be to give them a country that is worthy of their potential. God bless you and thank you. Our thanks to Governor Rick Perry of Texas for his comments here today at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you talked a little bit about energy. Is there a, a role for government in energy, or is that something that should be left entirely to the private sector? No, I mean, the, listen, I'm not, sometimes people get me confused with being an anti-government person. I'm not an anti-government person. I'm just a small government person. I think government has a role, and it's fairly well delineated in our, in our Constitution where that should be. I'm not sure why we need a Department of Energy that is as broad and as big and as cumbersome as the one that we have. Um, I'm not sure why we need a Department of Education. There's a third one that uh, will come to me, but I'll get to it in a minute. You, you served in the Air Force and, and um, probably know a big part of the Department of Energy is national security yep. and nuclear. America's and they have nuclear some, and, and they have, listen, 
Remember we talked about, I, I showed you this book. This is uh, George Schultz's edited book called Game Changers, Energy on the Move. And it is a fascinating read if you're interested in innovation uh, and, and the Department of DARPA, uh, another great agency of government, the Defense Accelerated Research Project Agency, uh, the Department Helped of Energy. The internet. Yes, I mean, all of, I thought Al Gore did that. Um, okay, just kidding. Um, the, the point is, we have agencies of government at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level in, in, that play a role. I just think we've, we've allowed our government to get so big, so cumbersome, so layered that um, it's, it's lost in too many, too many areas its focus and its ability to be efficient. Uh, and, 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 and allowing leadership to come in, and when I talk about leadership, I'm talking about the President of the United States, I'm talking about cabinet members, I'm talking about Congress, and really make decisions about paring down the size of government. There are obviously um, great and good innovation that come out of the Department of Energy. But uh, I will suggest to you that uh, we cannot afford the size and the scope of the government that we're paying for today. You mentioned George Shultz. He's one of the elder statesmen of the Republican Party. He's a big advocate for clean energy, getting off foreign oil, and takes uh, climate change very seriously. One question from the audience is, how can the Republican Party ever hope to appeal to intelligent people when accepted science such as evolution and climate change are rejected by the leaders of yeah, the party. Yeah. Here, here's the, I think, you know, I, here's what I think is a, a more important issue when it comes to climate change, and it's one that I hope that we'll really focus on rather than um, try to make this thing be black and white. You're either, you believe either this all the way or you're a Neanderthal or, you know, you either believe over here or you live in um, la-la land. I don't think that's particularly productive for this country. There are really two questions out there. One is, do, you know, is, is the climate changing? If the climate's changing, why is it changing? And if man's engagement is the reason it's occurring, then we need to have the solutions to that. If it's not, then everything's going to be fine. But if it is, we need to be able to have the answers to that. And my great concern is that policies that are put in place in Washington, D.C., that can strangle the economy of this country, jeopardize our ability to innovate, America has always been about creating innovations to address challenges that we have. And then we sell those innovations around the world. If, if, we, if we were to put in place some policies that strangle the economy of the United States to address the climate change issue, yet we do nothing to give solutions to this to uh, countries like India or countries like China, then we haven't, we haven't done what we've historically been involved with. 
And I think that's the bigger question, not fighting amongst our, our, ourselves or trying to, um, to, to push people off into corners, but to recognize that America and America's innovation, both the private sector working with the public sector and coming up with the answers to these great challenges that we have relative to uh, the environment. That's our role, and we cannot do it if we strangle our economy, if we put our economy in jeopardy. So for me, that's substantially a, a, a bigger place for us to spend our time and effort rather than trying to d d divide this country into, you know, you're wrong and you're right or vice versa. Doing nothing on climate also can hurt business. Insurance companies are very concerned about droughts, crop losses, severe weather storms. There's many more billion dollar mm -hmm. losses. Uh, in fact, there's something called uh, the Climate Declaration. This is General Motors, Microsoft, Intel, Unilever, Starbucks, Disney have called for a coordinated effort to combat climate change in part because of the opportunity, in part because it's hurting business today. But I go back to, I mean, so what's their solution? I mean, they didn't agree. They, those companies didn't okay. agree. They just so said listen, something don't, should be done. Please don't stand on the sideline and tell me you need to do this and don't have a, 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 a solution. We have historically addressed the big issues that face this country, I mean, excuse me, have faced this world. America has been where these answers come from. And we, have, we are driven by a free market capitalistic system that has a profit motive from time to time in it. And I will suggest to you that is what we must maintain, we must preserve, we must protect that if we're going to find the solutions to these issues. And we have always been about coming up with innovation, selling that innovation to other places in the world or trading that innovation or uh, showing the what wisdom of using that innovation somewhere else in the world. And that's what we need to be focused on. So um, I am quite bullish on the future of the globe. I'm quite bullish about the, 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 the solutions to our environmental concerns are somewhere in a brilliant, thoughtful mind in America, and we need to promote that every day. And one of those minds that you cited, George Schultz, his answer is a carbon tax. Pricing, carbon pollution, Shell Oil already has a, a shadow carbon price. When they allocate capital, Shell Oil says, we're gonna think it's 35 or $45 a ton of carbon. Oil companies are already doing this. Uh, some economists support that. Most elected politicians do not. Hmm. Uh, but do you see any hope or future for a price on carbon, whether it's a tax or any other way, to dr help drive innovation? I think, we have, I think we have enough resources in this country, if they're allocated properly, to fund the innovation that's in place. I don't, I'm, I'm not a big believer that you have to uh, go raise a new tax to go pay for. Um, we haven't done that in our home state. Um, matter of fact, we have, we have grown quite a substantial economy over the course of the last 14 years without raising new taxes. We've done it by growth, 
we kept a downward pressure upon uh, spending. So I, I, my answer is no. Uh, <laughs> what areas of energy innovation are most exciting and most promising to you? Well, that's a uh, electrical storage because you're going to need a lot of electricity to power those Tesla cars that are going to be built in Texas. Our, uh, have you written in one? Did you not read the paper today? It's, it's pretty exciting. I, I, I was. Uh, I drove one up today, it, or actually yesterday at the Hyatt. It was pretty awesome. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool technology. So battery storage, electric battery, storage, battery storage, area. PVs, all of the photovoltaic that we have is is uh, there is substantially uh, fascinating work on the uh, on, on the biomass side. Uh, these. Uh, very small nuclear uh, uh, facilities that are they're in theory now, but small from the small modular reactors. Small right. modular reactors. I mean, there is so much going on, and I, we were whipping through this book, and just it, it, it's fascinating. Georgia Tech's got uh, University of Michigan, MIT's, Stanford's Long Life, Crystal and Copper. I can't even say that next word. Um, battery work that they're doing. I mean, it's all across this country, but I think in the, uh, on, the, on the solar side, there's some really fascinating things we're starting to see in 3D printing. Uh, we're starting to see the ability to make some uh, PVs that are uh, flexible and go across the top of uh, um, uh, different structures. I mean, outside of some of the progress that's being made in, on the medical side of, of uh, the world uh, and, and brain science and, and uh, uh, I think some of the most exciting places in the country uh, deals with all of the different energy um, projects and innovation that's out there. Another question for the audience for Texas Governor Rick Perry. Uh, do you support President Obama's all of the above energy strategy or, and this is a slight uh, non sequitur, are you in favor of the elimination of energy subsidies? Well, I don't know what the president's all of the above energy strategy is. Um, because if he has an all of the above energy strategy, then the XL pipeline would be opened up. We would be uh, substantially uh, more engaged in the uh, exploration of uh, hydrocarbons on federal land. So I don't think the president has a I'm not sure he has an energy strategy, frankly, uh, at all. Um, and and, and, and the, you, you asked the question about the subsidies. I mean, you know, I am a fan of subsidies. I, I, think, I, I think there is a role for subsidies to be played. And uh, it, it, one of the reasons that we have been successful in Texas over the last 14 years of luring businesses to the state is because we've been in competition with other states and there's been subsidies that we put on the table. We said if you will come, you will cre create this many jobs, they meet this minimum salary structure, then we will subsidize your company this much. And you know, I've got friends who think that's not appropriate. Uh, I do. That is, that is the way the business world works. And I think that more government functions along the lines of how the business world works, uh, it's probably going to be more efficient. 
So we put subsidies into place to, to bring the wind energy uh, in, into the state of Texas. We helped subsidize the cost of, the, of bringing uh, that power from far west Texas where the wind is generated to the population center. Now, once those mature, they can go away. But uh, from the standpoint of you know, a, a subsidization for uh, oil and gas drilling, I think there is a role for that to play. I mean, if, if we are to become energy independent, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's good for North America to be energy independent. And if, if we, or Canada, or Mexico, decide to use some subsidies to uh, manipulate the process to get people to uh, develop more of energy in this North American region, then that's appropriate. Can you envision Texas being an energy exporter to other states? Right now it's an island, uh, but if you develop more electrical resources... Actually, we have, uh, we have a couple of uh, connections already in New Mexico uh, that are um, off of our grid. And um, where I think you'll really see Texas become a major exporter is in LNG. Uh, liquefied natural gas uh, from the standpoint of, and, and I, I look at this as not only an economic driver, but also a very important diplomatic tool. If there's one way to get Mr. Putin's attention, it is to lay liquefied natural gas into either Croatia or the Baltic into some, some ports there. And I think it is in Europe and the world's best interest that the United States both develop as quickly as we can the export terminals and deliver that gas into the European Union as quickly as we can. Now, some U.S. companies don't want the United States to export LNG because they're worried about the price going right. up. Right. I, I think you can find. I think you can find the appropriate balance, and um, I think as a serious supporter of this country's security, that most of those uh, CEOs would be supportive of our selling some amount of LNG to, on, the, uh, on the open market. You mentioned Texas's fracking regulations. Fracking is what is making possible the, the big supply of liquefied natural gas for export, et cetera. Uh, how do you think, there's a lot of concern about water and fracking. Texas isn't a big drought, but there's still fracking going on. Fracking's water intensive. How do you balance the need for water and the need for energy and the danger of potentially poisoning, poisoning wells? There is some contamination that has happened. That's not correct. There's... No, sir, there is not one, there is not one legitimate study that has shown contamination of groundwater by fracking. In Texas. I mean, okay, maybe not in, I don't know about Texas. No, in some places you know, people... I'm, I'm telling there. you, we do a pretty good bit of fracking in, in Texas. So my point is, I, I, I don't want to call you completely out up here on the stage, but I'm going to call you out. So let's, you know, we really need to be truthful about this. This is not the fact. Now, the question you ask, and let me, let me get to that, is about water. Uh, we're in the desert southwest. Uh, we've gone from drought to drought. Uh, I, I grew up on a dry land cotton farm, so I understand about water and the lack of water and the importance of water. Now being the governor of the second largest state in the nation, the most dynamic uh, economy in this country, we have major challenges with power, with transportation infrastructure, and with water. 
All of those are major challenges for the state of Texas. And over the course of the last few years, we have addressed those. We just passed a $2 billion um, project to add to a $6 billion uh, that we already had available to address a water plan in Texas to do um, additional reservoirs. These are basically off-river um, uh, type reservoirs when we do have uh, rainy season again, and, and it will rain again. Um, then, then you can uh, divert these into these reservoirs. Uh, also desalinization and then major transportation. Texas actually has enough water, it's just in the wrong places. Uh, so being able to move it and, and, and transfer it to the, the right places. And then as we grow and, and create more water with these diversion uh, reservoirs, et cetera. So, um, the hydraulic fracking, and as, as, as much of it has gone on and as water intensive it is, has only, it only accounts for 1% of, of the water usage in the state of Texas. So, um, and, and page 10 in the book, the University of Texas, who by the way are in the College World Series, um, They have a novel membrane that reduces fracking water consumption by 50%. That's the innovation that I'm talking about. That's the reason that we need to continue to go back to and focus on how do we give incentives to all of the different, whether it's our universities, whether it's the private sector, whether it's private public partnerships working together, to, to promote that innovation to come up with the challenges that we have as a people, whether it's finding ways to use less water, to protect that water. And, and one of the things, and I said this in my speech, uh, Greg, about the, the, we were the first state in the nation right. to put, uh, the, the, you have to uh, um, disclose, fracking. disclose your fracking compounds so that if, if it ever got in there, we know where it would come from. But it's never, it's never in Texas, that's never been the case. For people interested outside Texas, ProPublica did a report <laughs> on uh, what they claimed was a thousand instances of groundwater contamination. Not sure if Texas was the case, but in other states, ProPublica, Pro Abram Lusgarten has done some reporting on yeah. that. We have a lot of questions that are not on energy. Uh, in our time remaining, we'd like to ask uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry, uh, do you foresee the midterm elections having an impact on Obamacare? No. Those days of <laughs> repeal, Moved on. Seven million people enrolled. Well, I, I just, you know, you said this election. I don't think this election is the election that could have an impact on it. I think as you as you go forward, what are some of the things that uh, need to be need to be addressed? Uh, you know, I, I think there's some some things that can occur, uh, and are, and will occur, but they're probably not going to happen in the next two years even if the Republicans take over the Senate because the president's gonna, gonna block these things. So, to, you know, post-2016, there may be uh, a, a substantial uh, and, and successful effort uh, to, to repeal all or part of Obamacare, but, you know, that's so far down the road. Uh, Follow-up question about uh, you rejected the Medicaid expansion in Texas, leaving 1.5 million Texans without medical insurance. Uh, your, your thoughts on doing that? Two things. Um, one is, even the President of the United States said that uh, Medicaid is broken. In 2009, he, he made that statement. Uh, it is now taken up, the, the 
program as prescribed takes up uh, well over 25% of the total Texas state budget. Um, and so the question for me and the members of the legislature, why would we expand a program that is broken? Why would we expand a program that is already proven to not be an efficient way to deliver health care? Uh, we have put in waiver request after waiver request. Um, again, I go back to that premise that I made earlier that governors and legislators best know how to deliver health care, education policies, transportation policies, rather than one size fits all out of Washington, D.C. I can assure you that if they would block grants, matter of fact, I offered at one uh, time, I think back in 2011, that we would be willing to take 80% of what they had sent the state of Texas. It's about $20 billion a year. We would take 80% of that if they would remove all of the strings that were attached and the requirements and allow us to come up with the programs, give a multitude of choices for people, uh, co-pays, all types of, 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 of ideas, and we would deliver more health care to more people in a more efficient way. Of course, uh, we, were, we were told no. Um, I think one of the real solutions to health care delivery is not forcing people to buy insurance, but it's about access to health care. In 2003, we passed the most sweeping tort reform in the nation. It has paid extraordinary dividends in our home state. There are 34,000 more licensed physicians in Texas than there was in 2003. 19 counties along the Rio Grande. If you were a pregnant female, you had to leave that county to get prenatal care. Not so today. There are neurosurgeons in, in, in a number of those counties today. There are places in the state of Texas that had health care rationed. And they're receiving it today because the state made the decisions about how to deal, in this case, with the frivolous lawsuits that were being filed and, and running a lot of doctors out of the practice of medicine. So the states need to be given the freedom. I'm a, wrap up with this. Last March, we're sitting in the White House with about 40 governors. It's about an equal split, Democrats and Republicans. And the president was asked directly about waivers to the states to allow the states to have more freedom to deliver health care for their citizens. And the president basically said, I do not trust you to deliver health care to your citizens. Now, that made Democrat governors mad, I got to think. And the fact is, we've got to get away from this one-size-fits-all, that Washington is the central fount of wisdom, and trust these state governments to deliver health care or education policies. And so I, I get back to the people of the state of Texas would have clearly sent a message that they want more Medicaid, if that would have been the case. They didn't. It's not about how many people do you have or you're forcing to buy insurance. The question is about do the people of your state have access? And I'll suggest to you 
in Texas, they have access to some of the finest health care in the world. If you're just joining us today, our guest at the Commonwealth Club of California is Texas Governor Rick Perry. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, another question about access is about access to abortion, a women's right to choose. Is that a place where it ought to be a woman's right and not to have the government interfere? Yeah. Um, listen, the Constitution of the United States gives a, a, a clear right to that. Whether you agree with it or not, that's what the Constitution says. So we, you know, held our hands up and um, we support the Constitution of the United States. The question is, does the state have the right to limit the amount of time after a, a particular period of time which they can uh, restrict it? Uh, and the answer to that is yes. And in Texas, they decided that after five months, they were going to limit abortions. And uh, so that is overwhelmingly supported by the Texas legislature. And again, if your state, you want it to go to 28 weeks or to whatever the federal limit is, that, that should be your state's call. But in the state of Texas, by their duly elected legislators, they said that after five months, we're gonna protect the life of that child. And I agreed with it, I signed that piece of legislation. Do you believe homosexuals can be cured by prayer or counseling? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I'm, um, so. Is it a disorder? I wrote a book called uh, uh, On My Honor, and I talked about that people make choices in life. Um, and whether or not you feel compelled to follow a particular lifestyle or not, you have the ability to decide not to do that. And, and I, I made the point of, of talking about alcoholism. Uh, I may have the, the genetic coding that I'm inclined to be an alcoholic, but I have the desire not to do that. And I look at the homosexual issue as the same way. Another area about sort of personal liberty, government intervention, uh, do you foresee marijuana being legalized in Texas within the near future? Uh, no. <laughs> Shouldn't people be free to get high and the government not tell them? You asked me if I thought it was going to be okay. legal and I answered I so. you straight up. Uh, I think that should be decided by the states, actually. So if you want to smoke weed and get high, go to Colorado. <laughs> In case you're wondering, we're talking with Texas Governor Rick Perry. We'll get the Colorado governor here some another time. There's a number of questions here about California and, and Texas. Uh, what other businesses are you interested in luring to Texas recently? Uh, you talked about Tesla, Occidental Petroleum, Toyota. Uh, is Chevron next? Do you have a list? Google? I don't know. There's a nice hot sauce company down uh, in uh, Temecula that we're, uh, we're talking to. Listen, You're this, not is saying. A, this is the most interesting thing. Um, and I, I believe this with all my heart, that, that competition is a good thing. And that I can promise you, 
Bobby Jindal is sitting over in Louisiana talking to his members of the legislature about how to put tax policies into place and regulations into place that would be advantageous for Texas companies to move across the Sabine River and site in Louisiana. Promise you, Rick Scott in Florida, not only is he trying to figure out how to get the heat to beat the Spurs, he is also trying to figure out how to put policies in place in his state. And he's doing a really good job of it. This guy makes me nervous. Uh, and, and, but, but that competition is, is, I will suggest to you, what drives these, uh, the, these states to be more competitive. Some, how many of you have seen the, the new New York ad? You know, I've been on TV and you've seen the new New York ad. It's actually a very good ad. And, and, and I, my hat's off to Governor Cuomo for um, putting uh, that incentive program into place. Now, I don't think it's going to be particularly effective, but um, it, it, my hat's off to him. And he wouldn't have done it if Rick Scott and Nikki Haley and uh, Ed Al had not gone to New York and recruited businesses up there. You, you change your, your, um, your practices when you're pushed, when you're challenged. And that's why I think all of this is really important. And, 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 and as I said across the board, listen, this is, this is not, these decisions were different. I mean, you talked about the homosexual issue earlier, and, and the fact is, let the states decide those. Let the states make the decision about the issues of these social issues, and, and people will decide where they want to live. And, uh, and I think America will be substantially more competitive in an economic way, and I think they'll be happier from the standpoint of, of uh, not just you know, trying to make everybody, you know, sometimes that round peg doesn't fit in my square hole. A question from the audience uh, says, are you afraid of a race to the bottom and giving businesses tax breaks and tax holidays? That the, there's a thought that uh, by the states competing against each other, they, and somehow it, it hurts the country as a whole. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm not worried about it in the least. One of the arguments that I heard that, that I always kind of chuckle about is like a, when we recruit a business to Texas or one that's going to expand, uh, and they don't expand in a particular state, and they come to Texas and they expand, or they come to Nevada and expand, or wherever. And the argument is, well, all you're doing is moving jobs from here to there. Well, that's not true, because what's happening is that these jobs would not have been created if they had to stay there because of the overtaxation, overregulation, overlitigation, whatever it is that, that was restricting their growth. Because if they were going to, if, if they were going to expand and create those jobs, they would have done it right there. My bet is people really don't want to leave. I mean, so February of 2013, I'm in uh, Laguna Beach. I got 30 businesses that we've asked to come, and they're curious. They want to come here. What we're going to talk to them about? You know, making this pitch about them coming to Texas. This is the one, if you'll remember, this was the $17,000 radio ad that we ran that the Governor Brown said wasn't much more than a, okay? Um, 30 people are standing up there. I'm making the pitch about why they need to come to Texas and the sun's just going down behind me. It's just touched the Pacific in Laguna Beach. 
And I said, that is exhibit A for how government could screw something up so bad that you would leave that. <laughs> and there was nervous laughter just like you had in that room. <laughs> because you have an incredibly beautiful state. But it's not so beautiful that at some point in time you don't over-regulate them, you don't overtax them, you don't over-litigate them, that they don't finally pick up and say, you know, I can't take this anymore. And that's really what this, is, this discussion's all about with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a competitor and I will go talk to people about coming to Texas and living free. But this is about America. Because if this country is not more competitive, we're going to lose our edge. We're going to lose our ability to be innovators. And the solutions to the challenges that face this country are going to be lost. And that's what this is really about. And, and I don't make any apologies for where I go, what I do. Uh, I know everybody now doesn't want to be a Texan. Not everybody. That's okay. But I do want to, I do want to push that conversation where we talk about these red state versus blue state policies. As I said in my remarks, I'm not here to diss California. I'm here to lay out what we've done in the state of Texas economically and let you decide which one of those economic policies best suits you. We have a, just a couple of moments left and there's a number of questions about immigration and I wonder if we might do a quick lightning round if you're game before, the, before we end. I can do yes and no. Um, the uh, uh, number of questions, are you willing to put the Texas National Guard on the southern border of Texas to stop illegal immigrants? Something about whether uh, children of illegal immigrants should be admitted to public institutions of higher learning uh, on the same basis as natural born citizens. So a little more on immigration then we'll wrap yeah. up. Um, we're addressing this issue. This is a very serious uh, situation that we have on the, the border between Mexico and Texas. We've got 1,200 mile border. Uh, in 2012, we saw this issue with these children, these unaccompanied alien children, as they're referred to, coming in on top of rail cars from Central America. We've known this has been going on for 12, uh, or excuse, excuse me, since 2012. We have expended over approximately $500 million since 2009 on border security uh, in Texas with Texas taxpayer dollars, putting Texas Rangers on the border uh, and uh, uh, augmenting uh, local police departments, doing substantial surge operations. We actually know how to secure the border, and, and, uh, and I've shared that with the federal government on multiple occasions. We've taken uh, both the news media there and congressmen there, and, and uh, uh, there seems to be a clear decision by the current administration that they are not going to secure the border. That is a major problem, and let me tell you why. We are apprehending as of today 1,000 individuals a day. That's the, that's the flood that's occurring. Those individuals are being put into facilities. If there is a major natural disaster, think a Hurricane Katrina, 
are Hurricane Ike, where we have literally hundreds of thousands of people who are dislocated. And we're going into hurricane season as we speak. If that occurs, we have no place to house our citizens. That's the dilemma that we're facing because the federal government fails in its job to secure this border. We must, as a country, put the resources on that border to defend it. We are seeing historic highs of apprehensions of people who they refer to as other than Mexicans. These are from countries other than Mexico, and there is historic highs from countries who have substantial ties to Al-Qaeda. That is very unnerving to me. As the governor of the state, as the individual who's been tasked with keeping my citizens safe, and the federal government is failing in its constitutional responsibility to secure the border. That was not a lightning round, but that needed to be said. And before we wrap up, I'd like to... Um... Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank Governor Perry for coming to San Francisco and, and having this conversation. Not a lot of national Republican leaders venture into San Francisco <laughs> with our San Francisco values and all that. So just coming here and being with us today, I think, is something to be applauded. Um, we wish that... Uh, more would do that. Real quick, I'm just going to mention a couple names. You give me a, your first impression, reaction. Jeb Bush. Um, very capable, good governor, good guy. Hillary Clinton. Very, very capable public servant, great secretary of state, first lady. I'm, she's uh, very capable. San Francisco 49ers. I'm actually into basketball. I think the, the, uh, the Spurs are going to do it. Uh, in five. I'd, I'd like to, uh, our thanks to Governor Rick Perry for our conversation about America becoming energy dependent and many other social issues today. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club series on ethics and accountability, underwritten by the Charles Travers family. I'd like to thank everyone here in the audience as well as on the radio and the internet. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place we're in it now, is adjourned. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.